0: What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Alicia, and this episode features Lee Moulton. Lee is an angel investor and global head of partnerships at SeatGeek.com. Lee also has resilience in his blood. While he was born in the U.S., his family moved back to Liberia before his second birthday. But by the time he was five years old, the Liberian Civil War had begun. He and his sister returned to the U.S. while his mother stayed behind to help her family get out of the country. Despite such a traumatic start, Lee managed to excel academically and eventually landed at Amherst College and began his professional career at Goldman Sachs. Eventually, he caught the startup bug, like so many of us, and was a founding team member of Breather.com. Lee walks us through his personal and professional journey and everything that comes with leaving an established company for the often uncertain world of startups. This was a good one, fam, so take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Lee, Welcome to the December 26th podcast.
1: I'm very, very happy to be here.
0: Very happy to have you. And yes. like, this is a first for us doing the podcast in coats.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling really right now. We usually
0: don't have to do that, but mm-hmm. we're in a very raw space, uh, which is not where we were supposed to be, uh, but without access to heat. So we're making it happen. But hey, you got a stylish, course. you know, outfit on. I threw the camel
1: colored coat on. We good. You, you know what? You can't be walking around New York looking crazy. You really can't. So, you really so can't. You know, you got to show and prove sometimes.
0: One of these style capitals of the world, so of course. you, you got to yeah. make it work. Mm-hmm. So tell me, who
1: is Lee Moulton? Uh, who is Lee Moulton? Lee Moulton is a very blessed person. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the child of uh, African immigrants uh, who escaped the Civil War, grew up in the South, went to school in the North, worked on Wall Street, took a risk on a uh, startup business, and now trying to give back and kind of show people how I got here and do all I can to help um, folks like me struggling, trying to figure it out. Uh, I get on the right path.
0: So we have had many people on this show who mm-hmm. are the children of immigrants. Yeah. And um, we talk about that experience mm-hmm. and some of the cultural differences and the drive that comes from that and the expectations totally. as well um, from growing up in that environment. What was your childhood like?
1: Uh, lots of discipline, mm-hmm. lots of reading. So my father worked for the United Nations and my mother was a professor um, focusing on linguistics. So growing up, um, education was a big part of our lives. Um, one of the key things I think most people don't realize is that a lot of us immigrant kids, our, our parents were the cream of the crop. Absolutely. You know, a lot of folks don't get the chance to make it over here. So um, both my mother and my father were very, you know, fortunate, but also very talented to be able to get scholarships to come study here in the U.S. So I think that, that has a huge part to do with my drive and my focus um, as, as in terms of what they instilled in me. So the other thing about being an immigrant's kid that I think is tough is that there's a little bit of a dichotomy in terms of your identity because you would think, as an immigrant kid, you'd you know be welcomed by the African com- American community, right. be welcomed by folks who looked like you, but. It ends up being a little complicated in that, yes, you know, you're black, um, but some of the some of the values, um, some of the some of the cultural motifs are a little foreign to most people you're interfacing with. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, it makes it very tough coming up to figure out who am I and which groups do I belong to? Um, You know, I might be in a gifted and talented class. You know, in a white neighborhood, those are the folks I grew up with. Uh, those are the folks who are pretty much relate to the most on a music tip or on, you know, cultural things. And then you meet your African-American friends who may have grown up in an African-American neighborhood and went to Howard. There's not, even though you guys look the same, there's so much difference. So I think right. trying to navigate that and do the right thing and be open-minded and. uh and, and not just look at what's surface, and really try to connect with people based on who they are as people mm-hmm. um, is, is, I think, a unique, uniquely complex thing that immigrant kids got to go through.
0: Sure. And I, I have been in those gifted and talented, mm-hmm. you know, programs yeah. and with a predominantly white environment. And, yeah. and what I found growing up is it took a while for me to be comfortable. Mm hmm. In who I am and the many layers of that and um, some of the cultural identity that that I had. Do you you feel like you really, Mm -hmm. even though you could relate to them, did you feel a sense of belonging?
1: Uh, You know what? I'll use two ways to slice this. Mm -hmm. There's socioeconomic belonging. There's intellectual belonging. And then there's just personality belonging. Sure. So uh, growing up, uh, we we grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is... um, It's a pretty affluent neighborhood, uh, sorry, affluent town, one, because of the university. Also, a lot of the Duke University professors and administrators live in Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And of course, Michael Jordan, Vince Carter, all those, you know, famous UNC Chapel Hill guys all have homes there. So the affluent place, um, but we weren't affluent. Um, And, uh, you know, so socioeconomically, Mm -hmm. I couldn't really relate to most of my um, classmates, Mm -hmm. most of the gifted and talented kids were affluent kids so that was tough but in terms of personality you know despite some of their socioeconomic advantages you know you just get along with folks you know you, you understand These people were just nice right. open minded good folks uh and um and then in terms of intellectually always got along Mm -hmm. you know we all shared a love of learning a really deep hardcore belief that learning was going to be our key to success and key to our dreams so I I could say that that that's kind of where things kind of that was like where the rubber hit the road Mm -hmm. socioeconomically where we really couldn't you know we were on the same level we really couldn't relate to each other but otherwise no, made some really good friends
0: so that disparity on a socioeconomic level Was that one of the drivers to
1: reach a certain level of success? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I remember I was in middle school and uh, my mom had this beat-up Dodge Cobalt. And for you, those of you who don't know what a Dodge Cobalt is, <laughs> look it up. It's not. It's not. It's not a. Not a nice car. Um, but that's all she could afford. And um, I showed up to school, and right behind me was my friend, and his parents just got a brand new BMW. And uh, you know, all the kids were commenting not how how bad our car was, but how nice his Mm -hmm. car was. They weren't trying to hurt my feelings. I remember just looking at his parents' car and thinking to myself, like, I want to have that car. Now, you're in middle school. You don't really understand what a lease is. And you don't know if that guy's getting the credit card debt just to have the car. But you you just see the, the incentive structure, the reward that this kid's getting from the attention and the positive, you know, speakings of his parents' car, Mm -hmm. uh, it it creates that endorphin, like, I want to get those kinds of rewards. And so, yeah, things like that you're seeing coming up. And then when I got to college, it got exacerbated where, you know, starts to be ski trips and Mm -hmm. starts to be where people are interning and they're interning on Wall Street and coming back with a... $12,000 check from a summer job. So yes, 100%. The the lack that I had growing up definitely motivated me to push forward and be as successful as I could.
0: I remember uh, studying abroad in Madrid and having gone to Penn with, with kids with a lot of money whose yeah. names were on buildings and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. um, and I remember just trying to, like, survive and, you know, studying abroad uh, for a semester and making sure I, like, budget so I could eat. And, like, yeah. you know, I remember I was, like, waiting for a tax refund to come back from a job work I had done the last year. So like And meanwhile, like, my classmates who were there with me from Penn, they were going, like, taking a quick flight to like Switzerland to skydive, like something crazy. Like, oh, yeah. and I'm like, I'm just trying to make sure like I have money for food and maybe a glass of wine <laughs> in
1: right oh, there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be really, really transparent. So I went to Amherst College, mm-hmm. 1600 undergrads, small liberal arts college, very, very affluent yes. um, school. And um, most people I knew didn't even know what that school was. And I just found out about it because my um my guidance counselor was amazing. But I used to make sandwiches, extra sandwiches in the lunchroom mm-hmm. because over the weekend, I knew that the hours would be shifted. And I had to study and I knew I didn't have any money to go buy food. I mean, this is, this was a reality at a mm-hmm. school that cost $73,000 a year. Uh, and, and you know, actually, one of my classmates, Anthony Jack, he just wrote wrote a book called The Privileged Poor, mm-hmm. uh, which is getting a lot of attention right now because of the uh, the whole college admissions um, scandal is going yes. on. And I think our experience as basically, I love the term privileged poor, mm-hmm. where we're intellectually gifted and privileged to go through certain you know avenues to get us to those schools, but still didn't necessarily have the the funds right um, to to live the median type of you know life. Mm -hmm. style of a college student at those schools. Um, Yeah, it's it's, things like that stick with you. Yes. And uh, you never want to go back. You always want to push forward. um, But you want to also make sure you're you're keeping true to, you know, who you are.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So being in those environments, Mm -hmm. thinking about the difference in the the access to resources that you have and knowing that you have the intellectual capability and the talent, what did you see for yourself in terms of career um, and, and future at that point?
1: So when I was in college, my number one priority was to just get good grades. Mm-hmm. One, of my, uh, one of my friend's dad uh, is a Haitian doctor. In Queens, and he he took a really you know good interest to me during freshman orientation, mm-hmm. and he's like, mm, tell you some some stuff about college. And one of the things he said is that eight 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 the three eights in college, eight hours of sleep, eight hours to do whatever you want, eight hours of work. He's like, hold on to that, mm-hmm. and he's like, do it every day, even on Sunday. You got to work, and he and he said, hold on to that time management. So when everyone was thinking about career to do after college, I was just maintaining, making sure I was getting, I was getting the grades. So when I applied for something, whether it be for law school or medical school or working at some firm that I had the grades, that grades wouldn't be the issue mm-hmm. because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So, you know, typical immigrant story, my parents wanted me to be a physician. Of course. So mm-hmm. my freshman summer, I went to the Yale Medical Enrichment Program, spent six weeks working in hospitals, hated it. <laughs> I had to watch, I had to work in the ER during July 4th. Oh, my gosh. I mean, in, in and so people don't realize New Haven in Connecticut is hood.
0: Listen, I'm glad you said that. It is hood. Because everybody just thinks Yale. We were actually just there uh, yeah. speaking out of high school, DeMarcus and I, yeah. um, and with the, a few people that we know. And, mm-hmm. and, like, people don't realize, like, New Haven is not just, like, ivory oh. tower, like,
1: yeah. Oh, it, it gets it gets real when you go over a little bit off <laughs> yes. the, the Yale campus. So I was on July 4th, you know, shadowing the ER doctors. I'm talking about domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Domestic, so much domestic violence where the the, the 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 perpetrators in the hospital with the police. Yes. And the police trying to get a you know police report done filed. And you see the the victim trying to figure out if they want to send their spouse to jail. Mm-hmm. Um saw some crazy stuff. I was like, Well, I ain't gonna be Eric LaSalle. <laughs> 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 and not trying me. to go down that it's route. not for me. And then the next week, I did the maternity ward. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you didn't talk about this on the Cosby show. They didn't talk about delivering placentas on the right. Cosby why
0: show. Did, okay,
1: as <laughs> even as a woman,
0: I'm like, why don't people talk about that more? Like, it's not just giving birth to the baby. No, <laughs> no. Some and other you're stuff happening. You
1: just getting started. You just getting started. And some of these ladies want to eat the placenta. Ain't going to talk about Yes. That. So let's just say, I was like, this isn't for me. <laughs> Uh, And then at that point I was like, oh man Well, if medicine ain't the way What am I going to do? But what's funny about life Is sometimes careers will find you Sometimes things will find you So I was in a very, very fortunate position To have a lot of friends in college Whose parents did a lot of very interesting things And, uh, you know one of the things that really intrigued me was um, the the concept of political economy. Mm -hmm. How does big business and the government work together? You know, you see it, you know, you see it, like we take back, you take a step back and look at capitalism. Capitalism is not in and of itself bad because it assumes that everyone has a fair shot to compete. Mm -hmm. But the way capitalism has morphed in the world is where, you know, monopolies reign and where, you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you got to go buy Instagram. You got to go buy WhatsApp. Anything that might even possibly sh- rock your boat right you got to go acquire it that's not really competitive you know so it basically is a war of who can get the most capital drawing everybody out mm-hmm. and I was like this is interesting understanding the way capital works and government works so I was like okay intellectually I'm interested in these things so let me see how I can you know finagle a way to work in this world and I you know was able to get a job at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I didn't realize how rare it was to even get hired at Goldman Sachs, let alone be an African-American working there. Right. Um, but I was able to to get there. And I think it wasn't a lot. A lot of my colleagues at Goldman, it was their lifelong dream. To work yes. 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 As I happen to be fortunate enough to have the, the grades and the requisite uh, kind of like interest um, to get into the program. And think about Goldman Sachs, most people don't realize you'll need to go in there being an economics major. A lot of the folks who are music majors, art history majors, what you have to do is know how to think mm-hmm. because they're going to train you, right? You're going to go through a summer program that's robust and intense, and you're going to get put onto that desk, you know, ready to go. Um, all you, you just got to have grit and just the ability to pick up concepts quickly. Yes. Um, so that's kind of How I ended up on Wall Street, honestly, it was like this maybe subconscious desire to, you know, move up socioeconomically, Um, this interest in how the world works from an economics perspective. And then, uh, you know, a general just realizing, wow, I'm very fortunate to have an opportunity to work um, at a firm like this and Mm -hmm. work in finance. And what were your parents thinking at that point? What were their thoughts? Um, My father was, my father is an economist. Mm -hmm. So he was extremely excited. Just to see how much conviction I had in what I wanted to do, my mom was a little bit more reticent. She saw me not wanting to go to medical school as more so of a, you know, you you, you gotta just keep trying. You know, you you hit a roadblock and you just don't wanna do it. You put in all that work. And mind you, I finished all my pre-med requirements. So what was your I, major? So my major, so this is, I was a pre-med and I was a political science major mm-hmm. with a focus on political economy.
0: Okay, so, right. But so you did pre, pre-med. I,
1: I did organic chemistry. Oh. One and two. I did biochemistry. Yeah, I I did it. I did it. Um, and I'm, And the thing about pre-med is I also have to take physics, like Mm -hmm. college-level physics. And it was was grueling taking those courses when you knew that you didn't want to practice that. Uh, But... Uh, it, it was it was great in the long term because I realized that, wow, you know, I really got to stretch myself intellectually. I really had to like study and learn and apply myself. And I took basically the most difficult track at our school, which wow. is the pre-med track. Uh, and yeah, but I still majored and took most of my second semester junior year courses and senior year courses in political science and ended up graduating with a political science major.
0: What's interesting to me is, Not the fact that you chose a different path, right? Because that happens. And I know a lot of people who flamed out after Organic Chem 1 where they're like, yeah, no, this is not the path for me. Mm -hmm. Without even getting exposure Mm -hmm. to a hospital. But um, Goldman Sachs and, Mm -hmm. you know you know, when you, you go to certain schools and, yeah. like, people talk about the big jobs that you want to get, and especially if you want to go to the street, that is the pinnacle. And, and I will never forget talking to one of my friends mm-hmm. from Black friends from Penn who went yeah. to graduate from Warden, and, you know, I came out to... Uh, yeah, Warden undergrad? Yeah, Warden I, undergrad. I came out, took a corporate job at mm-hmm. J&J, like, you know, I think I'm doing it. Because I came out of Penn, it was like, I think at the time, this was 2004, they paid 46000 for, you know, wow. first year. But, you know, to be 22 and And uh, I actually started before I even turned 22 like that. And you've been broke your whole life. I was like, oh, you know, like, yeah, broke, broke. 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 I'm doing it. Right. And I remember he went to Goldman and he would call me sometimes late, like 10 or 11 o'clock. And i would be like, what are you doing? Like, it's late for me. I'm getting ready for the next day. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm jogging home to get a workout in and I'm going to shower and go back. And I'm like, what? Like, I, you know, I still didn't quite understand the world. And I will never forget that first year he left. He decided to leave and do something else. Wow. Um, Oh. Oh, wow. But he left with $100,000 in the bank. So got the bonus first. Yes. And I remember being like, so this is why everybody wants to go to Goldman, oh, yeah. right? But a, lots of times there are people who get out early and, and like they're like, this is not for me. But then there are others who make a career and they call, the, call it the golden handcuffs for a reason. Because you oh, yeah. get into it and you're like, this is... I'm here. I'm going to climb the ladder here or make all my money here, but do something within the same vein. When you got into it, did you expect to make a long career there or was it a short term uh, thing?
1: It's something where I don't think I had enough perspective. Mm -hmm. It was more so like, you know, just fighting to survive, okay. making sure that I'm going to be here for the next year, making sure, because you, you have that imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. When everyone around you's parents work there yes, or, you know, majored in economics, you you, you really, it's hard to really get settled in. Um, but one of the things that, uh, you know, I saw was what happens is when you're at a Goldman for like five or six years, things will happen after undergrad. You'll meet, you know, a significant other that you may get married to. Mm-hmm. That person is looking at your lifestyle, your earning, and your income as a big. You know, you'd hope it's not a big consideration. Yes. But it is a consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, then you know, if you end up purchasing a home with that person, then you have children. Mm-hmm. There might be a certain level of caliber of school that that person wants. You no, know, their kids to go to. So you got. those are the real golden age (laughs) cups. yes there's no there's no going back after that Mm -hmm. because that's a lifestyle and if you want to go start your own business or something like that that is a seismic shift in a lot of different people's lives absolutely so i was fortunate enough to where i didn't have like the family children in private school um impetus keep me there uh what I I think one of the things that I learned very quickly at Goldman after I got my first bonus mm-hmm. was that I'm not motivated by money. Mm-hmm. Like, truly, that it was nice. Look, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I went on a ski trip. I was like, I got it.
0: Oh, yeah. You were, you know, you were flashing a little bit, right? I'm
1: like, yeah, I got it, guys. I'll I'll, I'll take care of this. Um, It was nice, and you get to help out your family. Uh, You get to do things for people. Mm -hmm. By the way, word of advice, don't ever tell your family how much you make. Never, ever, ever. Ever, ever. If you want, cut that in half or one third and tell them don't ever tell people in your family how much you make, especially if, you know, people in your family are broke. No. That is the truth. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I realized I wasn't motivated by money. Mm-hmm. I realized that what was going to keep me there was feeling like I was learning and I was growing and being mentored by folks I respected. When I got to Goldman, you know, and I'll say this, this is, this is known. So mm-hmm. I'll tell, tell, tell people some real stuff about Goldman Sachs. Look at the top of Goldman Sachs. When I was there, there were three guys. There was a Gary Cohn, who's a COO, Lloyd Blankfein, who's a CEO, and a guy named David Viner, who was the CFO. Who was the CFO? Um, those are the folks who ran the firm. He mm-hmm. looked across the C-suite. There wasn't a lot of, you know, there weren't like any women and there sure were any minorities. And um, then a lady named Edith Cooper, who's African-American, um, was uh, promoted to be the global head of human resources, which gets you on management committee, which is very, yes. very, a very powerful uh, seat but still you're in HR you're not a revenue right. generating you're division. a cost center mm-hmm. so i'm thinking to myself like huh you know she's and by the way she came from securities where she made it rain really she 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 didn't she wasn't plucked from HR she was cr- crushing it in a revenue generating division but the the um the path the management committee and to get up into that rare air was that hr role right so
0: okay can we just pause right oh, there yeah. cuz i'm like Oh yeah. you know kudos to her yeah, she made it up for, you know, crashing the ceiling in. Yeah. But you you are proving yourself. You're a proven talent. And someone looks at you and says, you look like you're a good people person. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, just what must that feel like?
1: That's the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then it, it gets even crazier where um, there's a guy named Jide Zetland. And Jide Zetland, I won't even go into him, but Gday Zetland is Nigerian, was adopted by two, um, his last name is Zitland for a reason, by two Caucasian Goldman Sachs partners. Went to ex- Phillips Exeter, Harvard, under, no, sorry, Amherst College, my college, mm-hmm. Harvard Business School, went to Goldman Sachs, crushed it as an investment banker. Same thing happened to him. They offered him that role. He, he left to start his own private equity firm. So I was seeing what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't got to worry too much about, you know, can I just look. Right. Right. Just look at the VP level, look at the MD level, look at the partner level and look to see what diver- the diversity and ask yourself, do I really want to get gray hairs trying to get to that seat when it's going to when I'm going I'm to have to work 10 times harder or I can pull a Robert Smith. Mm-hmm. I made MD, sorry, pre IPO MD. Really? Right. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Robert Smith was there before they went public in 1999. Go start my own firm. Did all right for himself. So that's what I started to see. I was like, the black people at Goldman Sachs who are crushing it left. They they move on. They dipped and they're doing very well for themselves. Mm-hmm. Actually, you look at most Goldman Sachs alumni, like Dan Loeb, and I mean, you can go on, uh, you know, Hank Paulson, Mr. Rubin, who Mm -hmm. was Clinton's treasury secretary. When these people leave, they flex and they they do an amazing job. So that's when I started thinking to myself, like, okay, Goldman is going to be for me, like, almost like being in the military, Mm -hmm. you know, basic training, build my intellectual muscle, build my connections, get this stamp on my back, be here, and then... Once I feel like I have become an institution in and in of myself, mm-hmm. I can leave that institution. Got it. And uh, that's what I did. And I was there for six years um, before I left to go um, to go do Breather.
0: So let's talk Breather. Um, we, we have a history with Breather here at the show. Okay. That, that was our uh, recording space for the first year. I guess a little over a year. Um, So we we loved the concept. We're we're like, who says you can't record a podcast Mm -hmm. in a a meeting space? And we thought the concept was so cool. Like even before we found out that, you know, you were involved at a very early stage. Um, And so now to have you here, right. And have having been affiliated with an entity that Helped yeah. us effectively launch this brand. It's pretty yeah. cool for us. And, and it feels a little bit like a full circle moment. But we all know the risks that come with startups and yeah. the money is different oh, and, the, and the whole nine it's yards different, different. is w- way different. And that's what people don't realize. It's sexy, right? It's really sexy to say you work for a startup, but you're banking on that thing panning out before oh, yeah. you really get get paid for real.
1: So what drew you to the startup space? So what happened is in 2012, something started happening in the financial world. Mm-hmm. What you started seeing was that there's a seismic shift in the focus of mess and making divisions from classic industrial companies to technology companies. Yes. Google went public in 2004. Um, and you know they were really, really rising up. Uber had just kind of started. So people were like, "This, there's a groundswell of opportunity coming off. Airbnb starting to pick up steam. And what I started realizing, I'm like, this is going to be a seismic opportunity. Mm-hmm. So what I started doing is when I got off of work, I'd go to startup events. I wanted to see what's going on. I was almost like, I was so intrigued by this process also, when I was at Goldman, I spent some time working in the executive office on a team called the Client Strategy Group. Mm -hmm. And that group, our job was to be a layer between the business and the C-suite and figure out which clients mattered the most, which clients were strategically the most important and why. And I saw a switch from the Coca-Cola meetings and the meetings with FedEx and the the Saudi um, uh, sovereign Wealth Fund. We're doing more Silicon Valley dinners, doing more things over there. Like, something's about to happen. Yes, There's going to be a huge wealth creation an opportunity. Um huge just like sp- these people are gonna put their stamp on the world. Mm-hmm. Um and, and it's hard to ignore that. So as I started going around I realized two things and I had to humble myself. I'm like I'm not a founder. Not right now. I'm not a founder. I don't have any capital. I can't raise a friends and family round.
0: Right, <laughs> I'm just gonna raise like five million real I can't go quick. Go <laughs>
1: to pass the hat around at church and just come back with 200k. <laughs> I, uh, for all of those who can, you know, God bless. God you. bless you. I can't do that. So I'm like, I'm not a founder. I don't, I'm not ready for it yet. I don't, I don't think at that point I was had the disposition to be. Uh, but I was like, I, I, I definitely have someone who can add value to a startup. Um, and I, I got to figure out how. And that's kind of how, through various conversations, I ended up meeting the Breather. Uh, Folks, and at the time, Breather was still very much a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Julian Smith, the founder, uh, he—this is really interesting. Julian um, is deaf, really, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Julian is, you know, from Montreal. Uh, he has he has hearing implants, and you can imagine. But he, he was—he's an amazing writer. He's written two, three New York Times best-selling books, um, or been a part co-wrote. Them and so he traveled around the world speaking and writing. So he'd be in hotels a lot, Mm -hmm. and he'd have to work on the go and write on the go. And he's like, "How is it that there's no quiet, private space I can go to write that can get book? Like, why am I either stuck in my hotel room or in a noisy Starbucks where I have to turn off my hearing aids and then have to deal with this like the fear that something's happening around me? Like, this is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's where it came from. Mm. So when I heard that story, like." that's freaking cool. And that's that's like an inner drive that's going to propel you to build this company. So I was like, that's cool. And then, you know, they needed someone, they hadn't really hired a BD sales person or strategic <laughs> growth person, like, you know, on the ground strategic growth, not necessarily marketing. And uh, through our conversations, you know, I was able to join the team pretty early. Um, at this point, Breather was only in Montreal, um, maybe like a few spaces, but we knew New York would be a place to start. So myself, um, Patti McCormick, who was the general manager of New York, we launched New York. We launched Breather in New York. Wow. Um, and it was, and then we had we hired uh, Maggie Burns to be our head of operations, and that was back in 2014. At that point, we had five spaces. We now have, <laughs> which is just crazy to think about, 55 now in New York. So it was. Um, but the, the true impetus was I'm inspired by the story. Um, Julian is amazing at raising capital. I can apply my skill set directly into this role mm-hmm. here at this company, and I felt a part of the family. I felt like you know I could have an impact here, and uh, it all worked out. Yes, huge pay cut, <laughs> right? Um, lifestyle change. Left my I had to leave my really nice apartment in Manhattan and <laughs> mo- move to Williamsburg. Um, not not to by the way. Not Williamsburg nice. No shade
0: to Williamsburg. No shade
1: to Williamsburg. But that was, you know, but, but that feeling, I just felt it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing I tell people, I believe your phases in life are like a pregnancy. You will f- feel it kind of get conceived in you, but you're not going to make the move because you're not ready yet. Yeah. You know, that gestation period is, a, is that length of time for a reason. You have to get psychologically ready for it. You know, not just the thing you're about to go do. And I think it just happened to be, I had been thinking about what were my next steps. I have been kind of like mentally preparing myself for leaving the lifestyle, mm-hmm. leaving the nice paycheck and the, the 401k matching and all those yes. things that keep you there. And it just happened to be that when I met the breather folks, it was like the perfect time that I was ready to make that move. And so I always tell people, if you don't feel ready, that probably means you're not ready. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not going to ever be really ready. I'm sure most most people when about to give birth, they're not like, okay, I'm ready for this. <laughs> you know, but it's like, you, you know, you can do it. You can do it. And, and that's kind of where um, where I was when I when I met the folks at Breather and was able to come and uh, help us build, build the company up.
0: Did you ever, you know, you, you said that you were ready, but did you mm-hmm. ever have a moment? of doubt. And I asked that question within the context of because you have the history of the socioeconomic disparity. So I know for a period of my life, Mm -hmm. I made decisions in my early career. It was solely about the money, like get this job. I'm going to work. Say I work at this Fortune 100, you know, make this salary, grow that salary, get the 401k, have the vacation Mm -hmm. days, take the, you know, be able to help my mom, be able to do Mm -hmm. this. And when the switch came and I went to being an attorney who advised startups, yeah. which I had to also, you know, you eat what you kill. So it's mm-hmm. that too. And, and watching startups run out of money while they're my client mm-hmm. with unpaid legal bills, mm-hmm. et cetera. One of the things that would play on my psyche mm-hmm. is the fact that I had friends who stayed on the traditional path. Yep. And who were buying, upgrading the house and upgrading the car or mm-hmm. getting a vacation home or mm-hmm. going farther out of the country when they take an international trip. Now we're yeah. going to Maldives instead oh, of yeah. Paris.
1: Oh, yeah. We're we going to get our own <laughs> villa in the Maldives. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, we they ain't staying in a hotel room. No
0: exactly. More. Did that ever? Did you ever have that moment of doubt, like based on what you were seeing
1: around you, or for other oh, reasons? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So this this is um one of the, one of the one, another good piece of advice that um a senior uh, African American in finance told me. He said you have to figure out do you think you want stuff or do you really want stuff. Yes. And and uh and that was really powerful for me because I used to think I wanted all those things. Mm-hmm. I used to think I wanted that extension on the house or to get that front table at that gala and and have people give me those rewards and be incentivized for that and I realized though that once I started getting to those worlds it wasn't really my thing yeah and that I didn't really care what people thought I had or care about those um outward displays of wealth what I cared about was just you know being around my family and being around people that were Actually, like down to earth Mm -hmm. and humble, and who we could go hang out on their porch in Brooklyn and have an amazing time, and, and it's okay. And I could show up with a $40 glass of um, bottle of wine and no one's looking at me crazy. Right. You know, so I, I, re- I realized, and that took me back to my, I, I believe everything comes full circle. I realized being in New York, you go through this like cycle where it's like you you end up where you, where, where you were when you got here. And then you go through this like, you know, almost 180 where you're like, I, I'm indulging in all the trappings and all the, mm-hmm. the cool things about being black in New York with a couple of dollars in my pocket. Yes. But then you end up coming right back around because you realize all that stuff you no, at least for me, left me pretty empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that, that, was, uh, that was something that didn't really knock me too much, uh, seeing all that. I think also I wanna, I wanna you know, make sure I give an ode to the black woman. So when I was uh, transitioning from Goldman to this new role, I was living with, you know, we're not together anymore, but an amazing woman. Mm -hmm. She did. She was doing much better than me. Really? She was, she's in the, she was, uh, she happened to be in the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. um, doing very well for herself. And. We lived together. That had a lot to do with my feeling comfortable mm-hmm. leaving Goldman because, you know, one, she was like, babe, I got you. Wow. You know, and that's huge. That's huge for a black man who feels like he has to hold up the whole world sometimes yes. unnecessarily. And she did, you know, I, of course I saved saved a lot of my money at Goldman and I was able to take care of things. But she really, really, you know, held things down. And um and I, I wanna say that was a big part of it too. It wasn't the sole decision, but have knowing that, you know, in terms of just being able to be and be able not to worry and be able not to stress out, knowing you had a supportive partner mm-hmm. um there, you know. Whether it be come to rent or come to bills so or all these like fixed costs, yeah, you know, was was a big part of it. So um, I definitely want to put that out there. That even though I didn't necessarily have my mom and my dad, you know, being like, well, why are you money? And just wish I had that situation. <laughs> I had her, yeah, um, and th- that was a big part of you know that transition going smoothly.
0: So you made the transition to breathe there. And I just want to say, thank, especially as a black man yeah, for being honest about that. Oh, yeah. Right? Because ego sometimes gets in, mm-hmm. in play and there's always this narrative about the black woman standing by, you know, the black man and lifting him up. Oh, yeah. But then when the, when the glow up happens, mm-hmm. you know, not giving that credit where credit is due. So I just want to say kudos to you. And even though you may not have gone the distance. Yeah. She's an important part of your story. Oh,
1: yeah, always, always will be. And
0: having the and the peace and the confidence to be able to make that decision. Yeah. So you take the leap. Mm-hmm. You move into breather. You eventually
1: leave breather. Yeah, I do.
0: So talk to us a little bit about your journey um, post breather.
1: Oh man. So when I got the breather, my goal was just to be part of something that was nothing. And mm-hmm. have that dream of making it something. Yes. You know, I was. I thought that was just such an amazing opportunity, and it was happening. You know, we were New York Times app of the week, and we got voted the you know one of the most innovative apps in the Apple App Store. It started to be where Jessica Alp was using a breather. And I'm on the phone with, you know, like, I forget which rapper's, like, manager who wants to book out breathers for some presser. And Mm -hmm. it just went. And then we're in London and we're in San Francisco. It just started to grow. And we went from 15 employees to 100 employees, 150 employees. This thing was just going. And it was amazing. But then what happens when when a company goes from, like, literally me in breather spaces, me and Pack (laughs) literally with tools, screwing couches together. Mm -hmm. Like, one of our cleaners couldn't do a clean. We have a new, someone's coming to use a space in two hours. No one's here to do it. We got to go clean this space and clean out the trash. Like, going from that, to where I'm looking at spreadsheets all day, look, trying to look at yield and trying to yeah. look at, you know, sales pipeline. And now that we've raised a Series C, it's a whole different kind of ball game. I realized like, OK, I really enjoyed that early part. And now this more bureaucratic managerial part where I got I'm managing employees and, you know, I'm looking at um, pipeline and forecasting and growth. I mean, those are really important things about a business. Yes. But that's not why I came there. And also, the real estate business is not the most exciting business. Not not exactly. It, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Like, for, you know, we acquire, so for people who don't know how Breather works is, we sign, we sign anywhere from 5 to 10 to 15 year commercial real estate leases. We're not like Airbnb. We do hold the properties on our books. Mm-hmm. We put those properties on our books and we... Do a, basically do a yield play based on the margin between how much we're paying for the rent and how much um, we're making on from the hourly sales or the daily sales. So it, once you figure out, you put a space in the right high demand area, you're doing yield management, you're factoring in OPEX and cleaning and the the furniture, but it's pretty much, you know, pretty straightforward. Right. And then all you got to do is just really build that funnel, make sure, you know, people were aware of what you could use the spaces for and branded it the right way. Um, So what happened for me was I started realizing, like, this bureaucratic aspect of my role Mm -hmm. now at the company. Um, And look, I I had a great time mentoring folks and helping people get on and being like a, you know, one of the things I started was these breather speakers series mm-hmm. where i brought i don't know do you know minda hearts yes mm-hmm. yeah i brought minda hearts to come she was a huge user breather um where we had the whole company during lunch i did q a's with power users wow and asked them straight up like what do you hate about our service what would you wish was better and it was amazing because the engineers are watching it the product people the marketing people our ceo um, our our room designers like you know there there were things at the company that I was starting to gravitate to more because I was like, I'm so far removed from the people. I'm so far far removed from these things. I'm just like, this is just much, much, you know, different. So anyway, um, I got approached uh, by uh, Russ D'Souza, who is the uh, co-founder of SeatGeek. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone I knew, seen on panels. We kind of knew of each other. Uh, He got in touch with me through a guy named Charlie O'Donnell, who is the head of um, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlie's been a friend of mine. We're on a flag football team together. And Charlie was like, hey, Russ wants to talk to you. And basically, anyone who knows me knows I love sports. I haven't talked about it yet. Love sports. I, I ran track in high school. I played football. Love sports. I'm a diehard sports fan. I'm also a huge music fan. Mm-hmm. Love music. Love going to concerts, festivals. It's a huge part of my life. Basically, Russ was like, do you want to run our partnerships here?
0: And you're like... I was
1: like, wait, 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 <laughs> hold on. I, I buy all my tickets on this app. Basically, you... You want me to form partnerships with uh, institutions and entities within the sports, entertainment, and theater world? Wait, are you serious? <laughs> right? He's like, you know, love what you did at Breather. Love to have you bring some of those skills. here to Sea SeatGeek. And I was like, wow, let me think about this. Mm-hmm. And I went and told Julia and Packy and all the OGs at Breather what I was thinking about doing. And they were like, well, we knew this was coming someday. Right. Um, but it was so supportive, and you know, I didn't. Again, I, you know, I was there for three months, laying the groundwork, making sure I was productizing and documenting everything I did, making sure folks, um, you know, I hired were, were fully prepared to know how everything was going to flow after I left, and uh, made sure I leave, left the place in good good stead. Mm-hmm. And and then that's when, um, you know, I uh, in that process, I you know told Russ, yes, I'm going to come take this role, and it's it was you know can't explain it enough. It's a dream job. Wow. It's a dream job. I'm um, working with the NFL and, you know, teams like the Cowboys and the Saints and, you know, getting to form partnerships. Like we're doing a festival um, in Dallas. The first time we, um, AT&T Stadium has ever done a hip hop festival is being headlined by Juice World and Future. Nice. You know, so those are the kind of things I get to work on and do. So it's, it's like, it's so, it's so like, I feel so blessed. Yeah. Because I would have never been in this position. It wasn't for Breather. Mm-hmm. I would have never been in the position that Breather if it wasn't for my experience at Goldman to learn and get those insights. So it's like I feel very, very fortunate to kind of mm-hmm. have this journey and be at Seek Geek and do what I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah. And and we, you know, you hear these stories of the building blocks, yeah. how one opportunity, you know, gave you the skills, led to another, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But um, A cold, hard truth is that we hear those stories a a lot more frequently within the tech and startup space uh, when we're talking about our Caucasian uh, brethren. Uh, When it comes to us, we tend to um, be the exception instead of the norm. Um, And I think paths are opening up and more opportunities are being created by way of minority centric. Venture capital funds, accelerators, etc., but yeah. the the gap is still vast, huge. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts around how we begin to open up the pipeline for people yeah. who look like us within the tech tech world and the venture capital world?
1: Yeah. So th- there's some macro things going on, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest macro thing is this divert, like this aversion to taking risk. Yeah. Because of how African Americans have been treated in this country over the last three, four, five centuries, um, taking risk is is harder. You know, just culturally. You know, um, a lot of us don't have the financial um, safety net mm-hmm. to leave. Especially when you when you work your butt off and get into these elite schools to leave these clear tracks in the law, finance, you nope. Know, consulting and go take, you know, take a, a bet on a business that has a high likelihood of not working out. Very high. And that, and the thing is, that's like sunk cost. Mm-hmm. Time's gone. You're not getting time back. You're sure not getting the money back. You're getting some of it back, if, you know, if you really find a good acquirer, it's really risky. Mm-hmm. So I want to preface it by saying that I get why, even for the talented people who are probably being recruited into the tech sector, they're like, eh, I'm going to stay here at McKenzie and, you know, I'm going to make 300 k in the next right. three years and I'm going to get my house in New Jersey and be good. And <laughs> be right? sitting pretty. Yes. And I'm not going to knock you for that at all. Mm-hmm. Why? So get your financial advisors to throw you, you know, get you into some index funds that... I get exposed to the startup stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what is unique though is the power of the perspective of working at a early stage business period. Absolutely. The thing about going to these bulge bracket firms, these law firms that have been around for 120 years, 150 years is you don't really get to understand how the business starts. And there's something so valuable about that, mm-hmm. something so empowering about that. Of being able to take something that doesn't exist, being able to put it to market and seeing it grow and, and, and owning part of it. Right. And 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 I think that's the thing. Like I I have some friends who, you know they're good right now. They're they were at Lyft in 2012.
0: Oh, they, just, they had they, a really great week. They, they got what
1: I call they got the Gucci bag. Not <laughs> they just get a bag. They got a Gucci bag. Yes. Right. They, they, they just they're getting a bag. Um. San Francisco's getting ready for all the new millionaires in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They're over here dressing about that. They took a risk. Right it is real uh my one of my classmates at amherst she was two years ahead of me rachel holt she she left her consulting job in dc to to, to run uber dc back in the day mm. she's gonna be good <laughs> like good good you know um so th- this is the thing where like even if you don't stay trust that that degree isn't going anywhere mm-hmm. your Penn degree your yale degree or even shoot your um Your degree from a great, from UT Austin, whatever. Your degree's not going anywhere. But that opportunity to, like, maybe try it out for two years and fail, you know, measure it. But take it. Mm -hmm. Try it more. Believe in yourself a little bit more because you can always go back. For sure. That law firm is always going to be there. That bank is not going anywhere. But that early low strike price like equity you're going to get mm-hmm. given or your options going to get get given at the next Airbnb that's going to be a little small window. And if you miss that, it's gone. Exactly. So be, so it's like, one, I think educating yourself on what does a great startup look like? What does a healthy startup look like mm-hmm. from a founder perspective, from an idea perspective, product perspective, and how do I fit in there? But then also being able to take that, take that step. And so one of the resources that I think is really amazing is this website called AngelList. Mm-hmm. It basically has every startup you can think of, ones that have been funded, ones that have been sold ones that just got going right now and have no funding and just at the minimum being knowledgeable about the opportunities within the tech sector within the startup sector and and always keeping it in your mind that you know if you see a a, a situation that might be advantageous right you no know, think about it try it out and if even if you don't want to go work there figure out a way if you're an accredited investor to become part of an angel syndicate and try to at least get some exposure. You Absolutely. Know? Um, so I mean, that's a big, big thing for me.
0: And, you know, I talk about this risk appetite. Mm-hmm. We've had this conversation on the show. We've had it, you know, DeMarcus yeah. and I. Yeah. And when you've grown up with nothing and mm-hmm. you get a little bit of something, mm-hmm. it's like the money under the mattress. Like, you know, you're you're guarding it with your life. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I don't want to roll the dice or I have this great salary. And also because it takes, I do want to acknowledge that because it takes so much for us to kick the door in on mm-hmm. the street or at a white shoe law firm, and you're told this is mm-hmm. a conveyor belt when you get on, you stay on, and you mm-hmm. climb the ladder. If you leave, who knows if you're going to be able to get back in. Mm-hmm. Um, that you yeah. add all of those things together and there is an aversion mm-hmm. to taking a risk. Yeah. Um, and also, less, for every, you know, person that rolled the dice on Lyft and cashed out last mm-hmm. week and on paper is, Ooh. oh, is, you know, doing really well. Ooh. You know, there's the person that rolled the dice on Theranos who mm-hmm. <laughs> is yeah. like, I can't even get an interview, yeah. you know, yeah. because of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I recognize that as well. But to your point, um, I also think that there's something to be said Mm -hmm. for being a part of innovation where there's no blueprint Mm -hmm. and you're having to think creatively and critically and come up with possibly a strategy or something that, you know, for a brand that didn't exist before. There's no predecessor. Mm -hmm. And even if it doesn't work, those skills, Mm -hmm. you cannot put a value on that. And Ever. even if you go back in a more traditional mm-hmm. route or to another company and try it again, those are all chops that you're building that are going to help you in the next endeavor.
1: Yeah. And other thing I want to say is about the length of time. Mm-hmm. So one of the people that inspires me every day is Richelieu Dennis. Mm-hmm. This guy was selling his grandmother's soaps on Canal Street in the 90s. On Canal Street. And flipped sundial brands to Unilever for 700 mil and Which is, and, just, then, and then Flex and bought Essence magazine mm-hmm. and has a new voices fund to fund you know, young minority women who want to start you know beauty and cosmetics businesses. it took him almost 25 years for his for his bag mm-hmm. still got his bag so that's the other thing too it may not come quickly right. You know, it may take, it may be in the case of Lyft, you know, seven years or Sundial brands, 25 years. Mm -hmm. But I think this, the thing is like you, to your point, whether you're working at Lyft and you believe in Lyft's mission or you're working at Sundial brands and you believe in Mm -hmm. quality, you know, safe, non-GMO, you know, products for, for minorities, taking the risk and sticking with it and and, and having a conviction in what it is, is really to me what's going to at the minimum, let you sleep at night Mm -hmm. for having taken the risk, even if it doesn't work out.
0: For sure. And I know we all have those stories, things that didn't quite work out or um, a hardship or Mm. or something that knocked us off of our balance a little bit. So with that being said, tell us about a time where you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day.
1: Oh, man. yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about this and it, it it's still one of the things I, I, I get nightmares about. So I was at Goldman Sachs working in the executive office and last minute, our CEO, Lloyd Blankfein, got invited to the White House. Mm-hmm. This is Obama's White House. And it turned out that a few of the CEOs of companies that we had live deals with or or upcoming deals with were going to be there. Part of my job was to aggregate memos on each company, whether it be Caterpillar, whoever, and make sure that Lloyd was fully briefed mm-hmm. on the business opportunity. So that when he met them, he could use his you know, title and his stature to help the business get that deal. Um, and I was tasked with putting together those materials and um, started getting on the phone, getting the bankers, everyone reaching out, getting everything done. Uh, I was at the office till 3.30, 4, 4 o'clock in the morning all the memos i worked on didn't save oh. didn't save. it was all gone almost eight hours of work gone
0: and it's four o'clock in the morning at four this o'clock point. in the
1: morning and he's on the train to dc at eight o'clock oh gosh i might have passed out i'm not gonna lie <laughs> it's just it's just this is like serious stuff and i was just like what am i going to do um and what was amazing was it turns out that I had a counterpart in Hong Kong and I just sent him a, a Hail Mary email like, man, I just screwed up. And so now he's like, dude, what are the companies? I have some old stuff that we can like freshen up and mm-hmm. whatever. And he got some other people in the Hong Kong office and worked with me. Wow. And by eight o'clock, Lloyd had his binder and all the memos and the meetings went well. And uh, I that sticks with me a lot because sometimes when you... Take too much on, yes. You you really really kill yourself or sometimes, and it's like sometimes just ask for help. you right. Be shocked. Who can help you?
0: And I think sometimes it's even hard to do that as a person of color, Mm -hmm. because the perception is already that you're deficient in some way, you know, this implicit bias. And now you've had a a flub, right, or a misstep. And now you got to say, oh, my God, I need you to to help me here. Thank God for global companies. I will say that is one benefit to working for a global institution. (laughs) Yes,
1: ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So that was uh, that was very helpful. Mm. So.
0: What's your dream for the near future and, you know, when you're retired and, and chilling at this point? Yeah. What's your dream for your life?
1: Yeah, so um, I just applied for a program with first round capital mm-hmm. um, called the, uh, the Angel Investor Program. Basically, is an eight week program that teaches you all the ins and outs of being an angel investor. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be an accredited investor to be a part of the program. Many of us are. Um, and, you know, I want to be an angel. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to help commit capital to the founders I believe in and help them not just financially, but mentorship, introductions, all that stuff. That's a big, uh, big goal for me. Mm -hmm. I'm also I've also soft launch an app called Flight. Mm-hmm. it's basically automated savings for travel uh where you know if you want to it's really geared towards people like me who have to go back to our native countries multiple times a year mm-hmm. there's like no option <laughs> you have to go back there's a wedding there's a baby <laughs> being being born you gotta go see your parents uh and saving for that can get pretty expensive right and if you don't plan it it's tough so this app lets you do that and it uses the basic premise of automated um, savings. So that's, those are the two things I'm working on. I want to make sure I'm building, uh, I I build a technology that helps people, Mm -hmm. um, connect with their families more. And uh, help help founders. And that's that's what, kind of what I see in the future.
0: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And you gotta also save money for all the things you have to bring home when you go. You, you
1: can, <laughs> well, first of all, I tell people you cannot go visit your family or your extended family when you go over go to see them without cash. No, for real, for real. Yes, <laughs> be prepared. You you, you, you gonna they're gonna talk about you until <laughs> you come back. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna gossip about you and suck their teeth about how you. Yeah. you, you you showed up at their house, ate all their food that they brought out for you, <laughs> and they cooked just expecting to get that little, you know, little envelope. So, yeah, it, it's something that's a true problem for sure. people, and I've went through it, and, you know, I, I found it, I found automated savings very helpful, and I think making it specific for tra- travelers mm-hmm. like, like me will be something— hopefully a good soft people enjoy
0: it. that sounds incredible so is are you still in stealth mode at this point no, or are no, you out there no mm-hmm.
1: our website's up mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we have about 3,400 people who have signed up for our beta uh, and we're developing it now Very cool. we're going to launch it around Christmas time this year for all the people getting you know all that
0: boy. holiday travel hey
1: you know there's <laughs> Afrochella now so people I'm not got, mad at it people are going to be thinking about it
0: and where can people find you online
1: uh, you know the best way to kind of find me is you know I'm on Instagram Mm -hmm. at Lee Moulton, L-E-E-M-O-U-L-T-O-N and on uh, Twitter at Lee underscore Moulton.
0: Well, I've enjoyed this for many reasons because, you know, we talk to many people on this show, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to lie, when I mm-hmm. have the commonality of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of you know, hey. an experience of, hey. you know, growing up in certain environments and mm-hmm. being in those programs and the pressure that comes with that oh and the drive that also, that also results, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's refreshing. And it's refreshing to hear the stories. You know, it's funny, we were talking, mm-hmm. you know, before we went on on record mm-hmm. about the Jack and Jill kids. Oh. So it's one thing to, yeah. you know, have that it's another thing to come through these environments and maintain your sense of identity yeah. and have that sense of identity outside of all the accoutrements you know all the outside stuff and be able to yes. be grounded and make decisions that are best for you mm-hmm. and it's not about keeping up with a standard um or what your peers are doing who took mm-hmm. the same uh, early route that you did so anytime yeah. i meet somebody who's been been able to maintain their sense of self uh, it makes me feel good it makes me feel like there's a village of us you hey, know look, for we, sure
1: we, we gotta help each other keep our sanity right
0: absolutely mm. absolutely and I hope you enjoyed the conversation oh, this as was, well. this
1: was wonderful this is wonderful anytime you guys need me back I'll be back oh for sure
0: you know yeah. we're big on the part twos around here hey, now so
1: hey, hopefully it's something to talk about
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So to those who are listening, uh, we have a, a huge uh, travel collective. I, I know because I just know, you know, some of our audience, people are all about that travel. Yeah. So check out Flight. Um, and if you want to just follow what Lee's doing and his thoughts and all that stuff, look for him online on social media. As always, you know where to find December twenty six er. Like, share, subscribe and all that great stuff. And remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by DeMarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovol. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.